So our focus today is real world data and real world evidence in terms of supporting pre-market regulatory submissions and post-market data requirements. And using this data is no easier than saying it, so don't laugh at me when I trip up today. I might just switch to RWD and RWE to make it easier. Um, so to start with, what is real world data and is it different between the US and the EU? Uh, Amy, you want to kick us off on the EU side? Yeah, so originally I think um, the definition of real world data coming from pharma was basically anything that wasn't an RCT, but it seems to have kind of morphed over time to be anything where you can get evidence that is more representative of a real world population. So it could be things like registries, surveys, um, you know, sort of data from patient powered, you know, uh, social media or apps or things like that, retrospective studies. So it's it's kind of it, it's it's expanded in, in definition, I think. Kevin, what's the FDA side? Yes, from the FDA, it's, it's more or less the same. Um, I know we always used to joke around that it's kind of a misnomer. Like, what does real world even mean, right? Isn't everything we do real world? So it's <laughs> kind of a misnomer. But yeah, so on the FDA side, it is defined differently depending where you look. Like Amy was saying, on the drug side, it's really anything outside of an RCT. On the devices side, it's viewed as any data collected from patients or Healthcare, uh, healthcare systems during routine clinical practice that is representative of the way it's supposed to be used in that environment, which actually is one of the goals of RWD, which makes sense compared to RCT, right? Because RCTs generally have a more inclusive uh, population because they have strict inclusion exclusion criteria, which in the context of RCTs make a lot of sense that you want to limit your patient population to be able to derive what effect of uh, your treatment has, right? So RWD kind of is a more generalizable data set, which kind of bridges some of that gaps in what you see in traditional RCT data sets. So what is real world evidence as opposed to real world data and like ways to use it? Yeah, so real world evidence is derived from real world data. And generally when you see it in marketing applications for FDA, you'll see it as real world evidence because that's the analysis of real world data. And it's essentially the totality of the clinical evidence that's used to derive the potential benefits and risks of that medical device or medical application. And I say that's analogous to how we use like the terms clinical data versus clinical evidence. So your your clinical data is your actual data that comes from patient you know uh, usage, and then the clinical evidence is essentially how you synthesize that to say how your safety and performance outcomes are supported. And that your so your clinical evidence could actually involve non-clinical data if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, so for the post-market data requirements, you know, I heard everything you said about what these data sources are. Why would you use those versus surveys? We're seeing a lot of surveys now. Celeste? Yeah, that's a great question, something we hear a lot. And I think it goes to what type of data you need. So if it's um, maybe that you need uh, very quantitative data connected to the clinical outcome measure for the device, um, maybe that data isn't available or needs augmented. In those situations, the real-world evidence approach would be more appropriate because it's very difficult to get that very granular quantitative data from surveys. Um, so I think surveys definitely have their place and can be very useful. It really depends looking at the device, the risk class, the clinical evidence already in place, and then what else would be needed to complete the story on the safety and performance. So when is it acceptable to use real world evidence in the eyes of the regulatory authorities? 
Like, why is this so confusing for everybody on how to use it? Amy, you're smiling, so you go first. <laughs> I you talk about clinical data and I just start smiling. <laughs> I think it depends on what you're trying to show. So if, if you're trying to show that an actual clinical benefit is demonstrated and you haven't got the actual clinical evidence, um, then you're going to need patient level data. So a survey that's say directed towards a clinician isn't going to satisfy that. So I think you need to think at what do we actually need to show and versus what is this type of study designer, this type of real world evidence, what is it capable of showing us? And if the two things don't marry up, then it's not gonna be very useful to you to use that source of data. So if you need, for example, to show that um, patients experience um, less pain with a certain type of implant, so their, their quality of life improves and their pain scores are, are reduced, then asking, say, their surgeons what they think about this is probably not gonna be good enough or accessing sort of um, insurance databases, if they're not recording that kind of evidence, is not going to be satisfactory. But if you can get through to the patient themselves, maybe through some kind of app where they report on that, and you have some way of quantifying that evidence in, in a way that's meaningful, then that could be satisfactory. Is it the same on the FDA yeah. side, Kev? Oh, go ahead, yeah, Nancy. Yeah, I think one of the other things I see with the real world data is you get a lot of patient populations that you wouldn't necessarily prospectively do in a study. So you're going to get evidence. You, you basically took away all the exclusion criteria from your clinical study, and you're looking at people with comorbidities and, and other conditions and how that impacts your device performance. So it may not be something you want to go out and specifically study because it'd be hard to get that patient population in a study or even whether it's ethical to do that in a study. But when physicians are using the device, you can gather that from those unique patient populations. You actually made me think of another thing, which is that you can use it as a flag, like you're saying, so we're pretty confident in this data set. We've got lots of good evidence and we're satisfied that the, all the safety and performance and clinical outcome parameters are demonstrated, et cetera, et cetera. So we're gonna use this source of real world um, evidence just as a flag so that if, if something comes up as a potential signal that we hadn't, we weren't able to identify from our other sources of data, we can investigate that more closely. Right. And Anything I, on I, the FDA side? Go ahead. Yeah, and I said you'll hear this phrase fit for purpose a lot. And that's kind of what, how FDA like, evaluates your real world evidence and if it's fit for purpose for what you're trying to study. So they'll evaluate the quality and the relevance of that data set. And if you do have a robust real world evidence, you can use it in a multitude of ways in the FDA. So if you if your data set is is robust, it meets all the requirements, like you know, it's essentially you can view it as a substitute or alternative of your tr normal traditional clinical data sets. So you can use it in lieu for uh, PMA approvals, de novos, HDEs, you can use it to support 510k indication expansions, or even meet post approval study requirements. And then on the clinical IDE side, you can use it to kind of guide your clinical trial design process. Like what kind of questions are we asking? What is our inclusion exclusion? You can also use it as endpoints. So one of the more creative ways I've seen it used is as a historical control for one of your arms. You kind of create like a hybrid clinical trial where you use your real world evidence to create a historical control um, to create like these things called objective performance criteria, which are basically these numeric goals that you can use as one of your safety and efficacy endpoints. So it's a pretty powerful tool that if you have a robust real world data set and you can generate good real world evidence from, you can use it in pretty much in any situation that you would have used your normal traditional clinical data set. Okay, thanks guys. Next one. Real world data is often messy as much of it comes from uncontrolled use of the device. So how do I filter out the noise to gain supportive information? 
I'm going to start, Celeste. Yeah, so this is definitely true and, and something that can be an issue, especially with surveys. There's a lot of inherent bias. Um, it can be like the um, patient population where the treatment was successful may have a positive bias, uh, but then you might have late responder bias um, if you're struggling with getting the responses in a timely manner. So there's a lot of different, like even the patients that you are administering the survey to and the selection, right? So there's a lot of sources of bias and, and that um, ability to control is very important. And that's really where other uh, platforms of the real world evidence may be more beneficial, like the, the retrospective reviews and national registries um, you can really um, design those to have a little bit more control. And I'm interested what, what Amy and Nancy have to say about that. Nancy, do you want to go first or shall I? <laughs> go right ahead, Amy. Yeah, so I, I think that that's really true. And, and I'm thinking about things like, for example, with registry. So we're thinking about mapping the actual data to what you're trying to demonstrate. And very often the registries will be, because obviously they're, you know, it's being powered by people with an interest in those devices, whether they're medical professionals or industry or whatever. So very often those outcomes are very relevant to, to those devices. But then you need to think about how many devices are represented in that registry. What are the sources of bias related to that? And, you know, has the registry been validated? And then you can then sort of maybe look at, um, say, IMDRF guidance on and criteria to look out for registries. Um, I think, you know, if you're looking at something like um, a survey, it, you know, as we were saying before, if it was something that you're really, really strong, the evidence is really strong, but you're using it as a signal to explore something if, if you get an unexpected answer, or maybe you're, you need more information on usability or, you know, whatever, then that could be, it's not quite as critical because it's not a demonstrative, does that make sense? It's not like a, you're not demonstrating, you're checking for a signal, if that makes sense. And I'm thinking about other things, like very often we find that um, prompts are missing. So if that's where the weakness is, then it, it kind of makes sense to say, well, we'll plug that gap by having one of these social media platforms. And again, because it's more kind of monitoring than trying to demonstrate a specific thing that could be an acceptable source of data. I hope I said that correctly. Yeah. And I think about, right, that messiness, but you've got a, a large volume of data. So typically with the real world data, you, that massive sample size is going to find things that you might not see in a smaller study or a smaller survey. But I also think it's really useful to get take that noise, that messiness, and then build it into, so you might follow it up with a survey question because I'm seeing some noise in this real world data and I really need to understand if it's noise, if it's just the way one facility or one registry records this, or if it's something real. So to me, it's it's informing that next step. I'm gonna do my post-market clinical follow-up. I'm gonna do a survey. I'm gonna extract those questions from that real-world data so that I get a more complete picture of what's really happening there. Yeah, it's, it's interesting yeah. as well when you see, for example, like different registries getting different outcomes with the same device. And you think what, what's happening there is that that one registry is actually recording the data more reliably, or is it that the standard of care is different? Is it that the surgeons are more, you know, not as good <laughs> in one country versus another? So that's that's actually kind of a signal in itself when different sources of data report differently on the same device. 
I and think I the other, terminology... oh, sorry, go ahead. You go first, John. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think that one other thing is it's important if you are going to be collecting real world data, you should consider like having a protocol that's going to say how you are going to collect that data from the data set that you have. Um, where I've seen people run into trouble is that you might have a registry that you set up, but it was for, for a completely different purpose. And then when you go and now the PMCF requirements are more stringent under the MDR, they say, well, we have all this data, I'd like to use it. But the problem is, is that all the necessary controls and checks and data wasn't necessarily set up correctly up front. And so one thing I've run into with registries is just follow-up is super inconsistent. And so you have like, you don't know whether people are not responding because they just, the patient wasn't at that follow-up or whether they just dropped out because they didn't bother to collect the data on that patient. So I think things like reducing in bias associated with follow-up makes your data a lot cleaner and you're able to actually evaluate it much more uh, rigorously and also making sure people are being consistent about collecting the data. Oftentimes, if you set up a registry with like implants or something like that, and it's a self-made registry, you get a lot of just complaints. And so then all your triggers and everything don't make any sense because your rates are really high, but that's only because people are, it's reporting bias on whether or not they're reporting the good things and the bad things. So really making sure people are reporting things consistently uh, is is helpful. Sorry, Kevin. No, no, I think that's a perfect seg segue into what I was going to add. So I think it adds further complexities when you're using registries that aren't your own or data sets that aren't your own. And I think, especially in the US, when we have these decentralized healthcare, where we have different private pairs that have their own data sets or different registries that aren't one cohesive data center, essentially, that there are different ter terminologies that can be used, right? Like a simple example I've seen is even like gender might be gender male female and one and then it's called sex male female one or gender zero one or even like device failures categorized in differently in each might be device failure device like fracture like what does that mean um and that's kind of hard it's so like sifting through the noise and trying to figure out a common terminology to, to build your to aggregate for your analysis could be helpful and the second one regarding the missing data i think is also a huge point right i think sometimes if you're just missing too much data you can't do too much, and there are some data sources that inherently will be missing some data sources that aren't just useful in regulatory applications. So like claims data, for example, is generally used to build for reimbursement and like claims and reimbursement. And they generally, they typically don't have uh, endpoints or outcomes, clinical endpoints to measure that. So like, if you don't have that, how are you going to use that data source to support a clinical study? But another way is that if you're missing clinical data, say you have a registry like John was saying, and you're missing radiographs, Right. Usually for orthopedics, radiographs is an indicator for long-term survivorship and uh, revision rates. But if you don't have those radiographs, you can look at the long-term data. Say the registry does have long-term data. You can use that longer endpoint as a surrogate to make up for that missing data. So there are ways to kind of gain clarity from that noise and try to fill the gaps that you have in some of these registries. Okay, that was a good one. Long answer. Thanks, guys. Okay, now we're going to take a question from the audience. What is the best way to collect real-world evidence on IVDs used for pathogen identification as part of diagnosis? Wow, that's a great one. That, that is a good question, right? And and it's so relevant right now. If you take the situation with COVID, you know, some of those rapid tests or some of the oral swabs, right? 
you're, you're finding a lot of false negatives and they're not supported or backed up by the clinical um, diagnosis later, or they repeat it with a PCR test and it comes out differently than the quick test did. Um, it, really getting access to that information, if you can get into the patient health records and really understand were they clinically diagnosed with it and tie that back to their, their IVD test results. Um, that's going to be the best. If you've got a situation where maybe it's something that's monitored over time, you could look at the trend line to see, do I have a data point maybe that's out of whack that doesn't make sense? And is there anything in the health record that says, oh, that would have spiked because the patient had surgery or there was some other external factor influencing it? Um, but it is, particularly with IVDs, I think a little harder to track like that performance and um, that's why you don't see a lot of vigilance reports on IVDs, or you don't see because it's hard to tie that back to the clinical outcome. So looking at the the long-term data, like other endpoints relative to their test result, um, as you were saying, Nancy, but also maybe comparing to patients with other tests or different um, you know, mechanism and looking at their outcome. So it's kind of like a prospective retrospective analysis. Um, where like the this pathogen device would be the prospective and then you're looking at um, like standard of care or different tests to compare just the performance and long-term outcomes between the two groups. I think it's important to note too that I think for real-world evidence, while a very powerful tool does have its uses and also not as applicability for some of the types of devices and, and studies. So if you're doing like a detection that's more clinical validation and maybe this real world evidence may not be the best application or like, you know, it might, it might raise more challenges than it's worth trying to collect this data just through the traditional means versus trying to build like a, a, using some real world data to, to collect that data. I think, there's, I think there's some way to correlate the outcomes that say yeah. you're getting from the, the, the labs. So if you're able to then correlate those outcomes to the treatment that's then delivered and then, you know, that it, essentially the outcomes from the treatment would suggest that the original diagnosis was correct. That could be a way of closing that loop, but it's a little bit complicated. Yeah. Okay, next question from the audience. Do regulatory bodies treat survey data as credibly as they would clinical data pulled from a lab or from a patient's chart? Well, I would say probably, um, you know, from my experience, when a notified body accepts a survey and it's a survey that is not directly linked to patient level data. Typically, they're looking at that as a something that enables them to tick the box of this proactive post-market surveillance. So, you know, unless the specific question was, for example, we want feedback on usability, and and, and they they you know were fairly confident that you know the, the original usability testing was okay, and they're just trying to back it up. Other than that kind of scenario, um, it's kind of like, well, we're really not worried about this device. It's been around forever. You know, the clinical data is not that great, um, but because it, it's been on the market for 40 years, we're not that worried, but they need to do something proactive. Okay, yeah, survey, that'll do. Um, but if it's something where there's an actual gap, where there's significant clinical unknowns, just because of the, you know, like, say, implants, typically for implants, they're not as happy with surveys, um, unless it's the case that it's an implant that's already got really good clinical data. And again, it's just ticking that proactive post-market surveillance box. Yeah, I think the survey design has to be really spot on and well thought out, like the rationale well supported for the survey, as Amy was just saying, but 
also like the scientific aspects about it. So the controls of bias, the you know sample size calculation, ensuring that the survey questions are mapped very closely to the clinical outcomes and safety outcomes that need to be supported. I mean, all these aspects need to be very detailed um, for the survey. I would also just say that all of these these tools, they're just all just different tools. And so they can all be used in combination with each other. And one tool may not solve all your problems. So surveys will have their place. Uh, going to patient level data and reviewing charts will have its place. Uh, clinical trials will have its place. And it really depends on what data you have available and what the purpose that you're using these things for. And so I think you know, surveys typically are not as high quality as going down and digging to patient level data you know, and going and looking at charts, at least as long as you're doing that in a non-biased way and you're collecting it um, systematically. Uh, but so it's just a tool, you know, and so they all have their place. And, but they always should be well-designed and be aligned with your overall intent of PMCF, your clinical evaluation and why you're collecting the data. Okay, next question. How can I leverage all of the PMCF data I need to collect for the EU to support an expanded indication in the US? Conversely, how can I leverage US real-world evidence to meet my PMCF requirements? Tough one. What do you think, Amy? So um, on the question of extrapolating EU data for the US, I'll probably leave that one to Nancy. In yeah. terms of, <laughs> of um, using US data, as like for, in terms of for PMCF for the EU, um, I think that's perfectly feasible. What you need to demonstrate is that for whatever the indication is or the device, that the US population is not significantly different from the EU population, so that you know you can still have confidence in the outcomes. Um, or sometimes they accept that maybe the US population is a worst case. So like if we were looking at, I've I've heard the you know heard the the team uh, the the notified body team discussing like. Um, wound dressings for diabetic ulcers, and they said, oh, well, we could accept U.S. data because that would be a worse case, probably, than in the EU. Um, mm. But um, And the other thing is to, to show that the standard of care is the same, so that whatever treatment would typically be given um, in, in the EU, that the treatment that's given in the U.S. is, is very similar, or whatever differences are there wouldn't be expected to affect your outcomes. And that can be difficult in itself because you can get variations in standard of care across the EU. So you might find that in Greece, they've got a like, different standard of care than say in, in France or Germany or the UK. Um, but as long as you can address those requirements, I think it's perfectly feasible to use US data um, for EU submissions. Yeah, and I think taking the reverse, right? EU data, FDA typically will accept EU data, but for the same reasons that Amy specified, you still have to make sure that the standard of care is the same, that it's used in the same way, the way it's treated. Um, you know, some things are just going to be inherently different. The way you sterilize the device is probably going to be different um, if it's a sterile product. So just understanding what those differences are and making sure when you take that into the U.S., that you've justified why that data is strong and why it can support the use in the US with that. Or maybe you supplement it with a really small that says, oh, see, it's the same here in the US as it was in EU. And so you really then have, you know, you're able to get to the US market with a very small sample size as opposed to redoing all your data. 
I think the other thing is that you need to make sure you're not interfering with medical practice. So you're really like whenever you start like saying, okay, doctors do this, that's outside the bounds of what you really should be doing. And so it's really collecting what doctors are already doing during their normal course of medical practice and then collecting that data. And so you have to be careful about that as well. Sorry, Nancy, did I cut you off? Go ahead. Okay. So that, and that can also sometimes be a justification for using real-world evidence, real-world data, that you're saying actually the ethics of, of having an additional intervention or, or additional sort of step or, or whatever that wouldn't normally be in the standard of care isn't justified by the residual risks associated with these devices. It's actually more ethical just to, to collect this via real-world evidence. Interesting. Okay, so similarly, if you identify off-label usage, as part of your rural data, can it be used to expand your indications? How would you use that data? Kevin, do you want to start on the FDA side? Sure. So I think when we, so there's, I guess, two points. One, I think we've routinely seen devices being used with indications not clear in the US, but used, cleared in their country, in the different countries, in the EU or something. And FDA will use that, can use that data as a basis to expand indications. The other time we generally see, for off-label use is through the compassionate use applications. And this is a little bit more challenging because I think while the intention of the program is good, it's too frequently used as a mechanism to kind of bypass the traditional the normal device approval pathways. And politically, they are very difficult to deny even if there are established tested alternatives. So I think it's generally frowned. So I guess if you're using OUS data that has that um, off-label use versus trying to collect off-label use in the United States through other means, that's the first one's okay, the second one a little bit more frowned upon and difficult. I'd say in, in, in the EU, they um, really are not keen on off-label use because, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll point it. I think that, it, you know, as Kevin said, in, in all forms of off-label use, they kind of see as trying to get a, around the appropriate, you know, regulatory pathways and pre-market clinical investigations that are required. So very, it's very unusual to see that as an acceptable source of data, unless it's this almost like um, a almost like saying a compassionate use exemption type of thing, like you're, you're saying, well, okay, we know that um, off-label use isn't a good source of data, but there's no other treatment options available for this patient population. And clearly the clinicians are desperate for a solution. That's why they're using this thing off-label. Please let us without delay, you know, get this new indication certified. But that that's very much the exception rather than the rule. But I have seen manufacturers surprised by off-label use in the course of collecting data. Like they had no idea it was being used that way. And, you know, so it truly, when they collected the data and they got it, then, you know, they had to make the business decision. Do I want to expand my indications to include this or not? Um, which they eventually did, but it was, right? You, you can be surprised, you know? So it's one thing when you're going out to collect this data and this evidence, you know, be prepared for a few surprises. <laughs> I think we will see this as technology develops and advances, especially in like the smart devices space that can like, you know, like implants that have like sensors and stuff, right? I think some of the recent de novo clearances through ortho have used, um, have stayed silent on certain claims of like fixation and healing, but that data can still be collected as the device is being used because they've kind of stayed silent. It's kind of like a tricky situation but it's not technically off-label, but they're still able to then collect that data while it's being sold and then use that to support an indication expansion down the line. 
What are the expectations for the manufacturer if while they're collecting this data, they do find off-label use or, or worse, find unanticipated adverse events? What do they need to do? You Thanks. can't bury it. You can't hide it. You can't pretend yeah. it doesn't exist. And that I often see that as the first response, like that's not what we were after in this study. So we're not going to look at that. Um, but you, you do have to, you should, if you're, if you have a robust quality system, right, you're going to follow the process. You, you might have to look at a recall or a field action if that's appropriate. You might have to, you might want to put it into your complaint system and do run it through its normal investigation. You might have to do a CAPA and do a design. Um, the, the one thing I will say is if you design your quality system so that every report has to have its own complaint opened and all of a sudden you collect information from 10,000 patients and you've got 500 of this incident, opening 500 separate complaints is not always fun or easy. So I highly recommend when you're building your quality system that you have a way when you get this kind of data, you can enter it as one complaint, you can investigate it as one, even though it might've affected 500 patients. So you just wanna be thoughtful upfront in your quality system before you get yourself in a trap. Okay, good That's advice. A, yeah, definitely. And I would add on like to follow it through, like when it comes to the risk management and the benefit risk assessment, like definitely revisiting those documents and then how that plays into the like PCER updates and the CER updates for the device, assuming that this would be in the EU, um, that, you know, this process is really like full cycle. Mm -hmm. Would you uh, would you recommend a pre-submission meeting before starting to collect this data to support a new indication? Kev, do you get pre-sub meetings for that? Oh, 100%. Like John was saying before, when you since you have these giant data sets, you need to have a really well thought out statistical analysis plan of how you're going to dive into this data, how you're going to analyze it, what you're going to be looking for, um, and there's a lot of other um, like considerations that you need to count if you're dating like uh, mining this data, right? There's like patients. Uh, they're like the health information records that you got to make sure there's like privacy concerns. Um, are you biasing the data by by retroactively looking at it versus dividing like a third party person that or third party uh, like statistical company that'll help you analyze it? Um, but I think the ones I've seen have I've never seen a like a submission with using real world data, real world evidence go through smoothly. It's always been multiple rounds, and there's always been questions regarding the statistical analysis plan. There's always been like you know, pre-subs, submission, and then multiple rounds of interactive deficiencies, trying to hammer down what they're, you know, what they're doing, what they're looking for. And I think it helps to, to talk with FDA about these, because one of the examples I mentioned earlier about developing those um, objective performance criteria was that this company actually was going through this and they realized, wow, their their control set wasn't that great. Um, they the, the registry they were using didn't have all the data that we needed to be able to get there. Um, and working with that company, we came up with that alternative of like, yeah, maybe maybe try developing these objective performance criteria that you can use. And it ended up being successful and they were able to use that option to get through. Um, so I think there are other ways, especially as with like these different alternative types of data sets that FDA can try to work with you if, if there's something wrong. Um, so I think it does help to talk with FDA frequently and often. Yeah, I, I think that goes to even before you set up what data you're gonna collect, you know, because I know of one situation in IVD, they were collecting all this information on patients that came into an ER, got all the way done like five years later and they wanted to use that evidence. 
and oh, you know, the inclusion exclusion of the criteria for the people that were included, FDA didn't buy into it. So all that data basically was lost for that purpose. They weren't able to use it. See, earlier is better in my opinion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So tell me if this isn't worded right, how can you map your required endpoints in a PMCF plan to the available sources of real world data? Celeste, does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so I, I think that goes back to really looking at the, the sources of real world data. So surveys, the um, retrospective chart reviews or, or the, yeah, and then reg national registries and then like medical device product registries of private. Um, and looking at the quality of data that you can get from each of those um, options. And then, so the quality, time, maybe what level of data you need in terms of um, quantitative patient detailed um, types of data and then match the registry as Amy was kind of alluding to earlier or match the the type of evidence with your clinical endpoint making sure that you know that the your need is going to be available with the option that you're selecting um, so it's not just like surveys I can get that data faster and I need data so I'm going to pursue this route it's based on the clinical evidence that I have is that the most appropriate um, and kind of going through the assessment that way. That's why we really suggest doing like a matrix of all the clinical evidence um, from a performance and safety perspective uh, to figure out what uh, needs supported more, most. So if the manufacturer does have access to this data, what is the process for using it like in, in your reports and keeping them update like PMCF and CERs and such? Does anybody have recommendations on that? I guess you, you need to collect the data and you need to demonstrate, you know, sort of see how it maps to whatever endpoints that you require. And then you can, you know, rank the quality of that evidence and show is it supportive? Is it corroborative? Is it actually demonstrating something? So I think you, in a sense, you treat it as you would any other source of data that you have in your clinical evaluation. And then you need to consider what the quality of that evidence is and how much it goes towards demonstrating, to, to, towards confirming the clinical safety performance and, and benefit of the device. So what do you do if your clinical outcomes from the CER are changing due to clinical practice? It's a tough one. <laughs> Celeste, you're smiling, yeah. you want to? Yeah, we've seen that and I think for PMCF, there's, you can maybe justify like you doing the current clinical outcome measure for like an immediate, um, like for an immediate study. So maybe it's a survey or a registry, but then for a long-term item like a registry or clinical study maybe, then you would want to use the new clinical outcome measure. So I think it's identifying this issue, maybe adding a table into your PMCF plan that shows kind of how you plan to transition from one clinical outcome measure to another and the justification for that. And that, you know, while you're collecting ongoing data for the first one, as the new is phasing into effect, your plan for obtaining data in that area. Um, and just being really transparent about it, I think is the best approach. Yeah. I think also you can you can start on the level of defining what the intended clinical benefit is and then acknowledging that 
to demonstrate a clinical benefit, there could be several different mechanisms. So that when the STEM, you know, if, if practice um, changes or what they're measuring changes, you can adapt that plan and say, oh yes, and here's another method by which you can demonstrate that this clinical benefit is achieved. Okay, last question for the day. Uh, how do you use real-world data to optimize your clinical study? Nancy, you want to try that one? Yeah, so all that data, right? We talked about it being messy, but it's a lot of data and it's really informative. But I think what it helps you do is define what are the, what's the variability in my data? How much does it vary? What's my expected level that I'm going to see? And all those are going to get you a much more precise sample size required for your clinical trial, or they're going to get you much more precise um, outcomes for your study. So instead of having a primary objective and then all these secondary objectives, hopefully with that real world data, you're going to narrow that down and you're going to have a really crisp clinical trial um, and minimize your sample size, maximize the chance of success based on your outcome, and, and really just make sure that you have the best opportunity that you're not going to learn something new in that study. Yeah, completely agree. I think looking at the data can give you a baseline for what patient population you want. And also we were saying before is that you can use it as one of your endpoints of what you're going to be studying for your device design uh, for your clinical trial design as like maybe a primary or secondary safety efficacy endpoint or even potentially an exploratory depending what kind of data is in that real world data source. Well, thanks, everybody. That was a great session. I hope it helped the audience try to clarify a confusing topic.